0: Welcome to Top Docs, I'm Mike Merrill, and I'm here with my co-host Ken Jacobson.
1: Hi Mike, good to be with you today.
0: Today we had the pleasure to speak with Colin Hoback, the director of Q Into the Storm, which charts Colin's quest to uncover Q, the shadowy figure behind the multi-headed conspiracy theory that drives the alienation of a portion of our populace, and in Colin's account, was one of the contributory streams to the January 6th insurrection in
1: Washington. You mentioned January 6th, and it it was really incredible to watch the final episode of Cue into the Storm, which culminates in the events of January 6th. We've been following Cullen and these characters for hours through this whole series, and then bam, there they are in Washington, right there at these historic events. For Cullen, I think it was just the natural conclusion of what these guys had seeded with HN chan and with their involvement with Q. But for me, it was really a stunning revelation. I think some of the threads in Q Into the Storm can be traced back to Cullen's 2007 film Monster Camp, which explores live action role playing. And he really made his name with the 2013 film Terms and Conditions May Apply, in which Cullen investigated the frightening extent to which we are basically signing over our personal digital information to corporations and government with these user service agreements.
0: That's the one where he confronts Mark Zuckerberg.
1: Yeah, terms and conditions went on to win several jury awards. Cullen's investigative skills are further on display in his 2017 film, What Lies Upstream, an expose of a West Virginia chemical spill that contaminated drinking water for hundreds of thousands of Americans. The film screened at many festivals, including AFI Docs, which is where I actually met Colin for the first time and was privileged to host a Q&A with him. His latest film, the one we're talking about, Q Into the Storm, marks yet another leap forward in Colin's career. This ambitious six-part series from HBO Documentary Films premiered on the HBO Max streaming service in March of this year,
0: I think you'll hear in the interview that Cullen, like his films, balances a profound urgency with a well-cultivated sense of the absurdity of much of what he uncovers. You'll hear that import in his voice, but also like a frequent chuckle. Despite his sense of humor, he's deadly serious about the dangers.
1: He is. And I think there's something about these three characters in his film, Jim and Ron Watkins and Frederick Brennan, that kind of lulls you into thinking, oh, these are just wacky absurd characters, but they wield a lot of power, especially Jim and Ron. And I think Colin does a great job of both drawing them out and then showing the logical conclusion of what is really pretty dangerous shenanigans that they're up to.
0: Coming up is our conversation with Colin Hoback. He gives us some really interesting background into the film, including why Ron Watkins wears a green hat. Welcome, Colin.
1: Thank hey. you.
2: <laughs> Excited for your new podcast.
1: Thank you, Colin. Great to have you with us today. Congratulations on Q Into the Storm. Thank you. Uh, it's been quite a ride in the build
2: up to the release and all the secrecy uh, before it, and then just the, the roller coaster uh, since it came out. Do you have a hidden
0: gem, uh, a documentary that maybe doesn't get the attention it should get?
2: There's a film that I really love that came out a few years ago called Strad Style. It reminds me a little bit of King of Kong or American Movie, two films I really admire. I don't think a lot of people saw it. It's about somebody who doesn't know how to make a violin convincing a world-class violinist that they can, and then you watch them endeavor to pull this thing off. It's a wonderful piece. Why do you make documentary films? I don't know what else I would do. I have been making films since I was a kid, doing everything I could to around video equipment. Even in high school, I started doing a show on the local public access channel just so I could get access to editing equipment and video equipment. I've always wanted to make films. I I started out on the narrative side, but documentaries really stick with me and they give me a chance to explore these bigger questions and investigate hunches. I have found that I just keep leaning more in that direction, but I love narrative structure and techniques and I try to bring as much of that style into the documentary realm as i
1: can how does this series fit in with your other work
2: i've made three documentaries before this my first film called monster camp was about live action role playing or larping it was a little diy film you know terms and conditions may apply was uh a film about the intersection of civil liberties and digital privacy and the internet and what companies are taking from us every time we click, I agree. And what lies upstream was an investigation into kind of corporate malfeasance and its connections to the government when it comes to the drinking supply. And that was more of a real-time investigation into these big political systems that determine health. I feel like this series ended up being an amalgamation of all three. I think a lot of what happens with those who believe in QAnon or follow QAnon is really similar to LARPing. The People who are living out these fantasies, Q itself, I think you could think of as LARPing, which is something that is brought up a lot in the Q narrative of this idea that it's just someone who's playing out this fantasy and all these other people are playing along. Meanwhile, Q was testing the limits of free speech with what it was doing on H-Han and how it was influencing discourse and culture. So there was that kind of terms and conditions parallel. And then I think that this kind of real-time investigation that you see in What Lies Upstream, trying to get to the bottom of a really complex system and getting into uncomfortable places with cameras, I think I brought some of that to this series as well. So to me, it feels like a mixture of my last three interests.
1: It may seem obvious now, oh, a documentary or a series about QAnon, but go back a few years and it really isn't such an obvious topic. What drew you to this topic?
2: Yeah, so I guess it was back in 2000. 18, I I was peripherally aware of QAnon through Reddit and other channels. And actually it wasn't until you had seen kind of people being like, what's this crazy thing going on in the internet? And suddenly Reddit had banned it. And that's when my ears perked up. I was like, what's this thing that's so dangerous or uh, that people think is so insidious that that it warrants being banned. And might that have the opposite of its intended effect? If the goal was to restrict this thing or limit it or make people look away from it, might it have a kind of Streisand effect and attract more people to it? That's when I picked up a camera. I was partially interested in this bigger question about digital free speech, but I was also very fascinated by the mystery itself. Who was pulling the strings behind this anonymous campaign on the fringes of the internet that was finding its way onto mainstream social media and into cultural and political discourse. And what might revealing the person or persons behind QAnon bring this whole thing to a logical conclusion? So that's where it started.
1: (laughs) When you started, was it just you? Did you have a team? When did you start actually shooting? I guess we took about three weeks to research, see if there was anybody
2: else who was Working on a documentary about this topic, if there was anybody else who had a a pretty big head start. At the time, we didn't know how long Q was going to last for. When we started filming in September of 2018, might Q end at the midterms? We didn't know. I picked up cameras... As quickly as I could, for the most part, it was just me, especially in those early days. Even when I was traveling internationally, for the most part, it was just me with a few cameras. Sometimes I was fortunate to have one or two people on the team with me. And uh, this is really bootstrap. Whatever money I could, I could scrape together, credit cards and literally air miles <laughs> that, that kept me going. And sometimes it would be resources that had come in from previous projects that I would just roll right into this project. We eventually got a grant from the International Documentary
0: Association. When you started out, you had done feature-length documentaries before. Did you see this as a feature-length, or did you see this as a series, or were you not sure? In the beginning, I
2: thought maybe it would be a feature. It wasn't until I found my characters, traveled to the Philippines and met with these guys who were running the website, 8chan was the name of the website at the time, the site where Q posts, that I said, okay, maybe there's more story here. But about a year into filming, I was convinced that it really needed to be a series. And I was filming for that and planning for that, but I didn't have an outlet yet. HBO didn't come on until September of 2020. That meant that the vast majority of the production over 90% of filming was done independently. It, it's just, uh, it's pretty wild yeah, looking back on just how much we had to pull off without having significant resources.
1: Was there a period in here when you're pretty much a one-man band working on this, you don't have the backing of a network, you don't have a huge amount of financial support, the story is getting bigger and bigger. Were you concerned that folks were going to come into the space and say, okay, we'll take over from here. This is, this is a job for Alex Gibney.
2: I was certainly concerned about that come July of 2020. It was a huge story at that point. Lots of people were pitching Q projects, but I'd been shooting it for two, two plus years at that point. And I had the characters that I believed at the time were largely responsible for propagating cue. I just knew that I needed to sell the show to one of these networks before they bought some other project that was just still in development. When you're talking about something that's a series, you go, what do I do with a series if I don't have some place for it to air? There's only so many places that could run something like this. I actually broke the whole story down. I I put it up on the wall and I said, what's the, the smallest version of this story? Is there some way that I can make this a feature because if I was going to edit six episodes on my own, there was no way it was going to come out on the timeline that I needed it to. That was going to take me a couple more years if it was just me. I knew it had to be a series. So that's when I said, okay, I need to get some real support behind this. I need a network and I need help getting it to that network. I I drew up a short list and I just became convinced that Adam McKay was the guy. Like I I was just dead set on somehow getting this pitch deck that I put together in front of Adam McKay.
0: Adam McKay, he's a executive producer on the documentary. Yeah,
2: I was a huge fan of the big short. I just felt he was going to get both the importance and the approach, but I didn't have any relation to him. So I just asked everybody I knew, do you have some connection to him? And uh, a journalist friend knew his publicist who helped me get my secure pitch deck in front of a producer on his team. When I say deck, I had 80 minutes of scenes that I'd cut together and I'd constructed an iPad that data couldn't leak from. So it was like a single app iPad. Uh, And that's how we, we ended up presenting the show to HBO was on these iPads versus using Vimeo links or something like that, which slows everything down as well, but was necessary because of the security concerns. We didn't want scenes leaking out earlier and we didn't know exactly what the threats were. We got the iPad in front of Adam McKay and he responded to it in the way that I had hoped. (laughs) And I came on as an EP and and helped get the series in front of HBO and helped elevate it. Adam McKay is the sort of 10,000 pound gorilla, right? He can come in, he can call up the head of HBO and make it happen if HBO wants it and is interested. Uh, I can't do that. (laughs) I don't have the head of HBO's phone number. He took a big risk coming on board and giving this show his blessing and saying, this is the one. This is what we should bet on. He was really crucial in guiding me, especially through some of the more like Uh, challenging moments in, in post and during the release cycle as well. But it really did feel like a series of small miracles back to back that helped get this show to where it is today.
1: You're clearly a very inquisitive filmmaker. That certainly doesn't make you unique in the field, but we actually see you in the film. You're often in your films. Were you always in this movie? And why do you choose to put yourself in your movies.
2: I try to dial back my presence in the film as much as possible. But at the same time, because I enter these stories, not knowing where they're going to go or what the answer necessarily is going to be, I'm basically documenting the process. I see it as a way to both open up the story. If I'm a character, it helps build scenes. It's not just always cutting to a subject and just seeing that subject there, but you can see an, an interaction happening. But I also think that process helps the audience play the role of investigator and it helps them go through the same kind of journey that I went through. I see myself as a surrogate (laughs) uh, for the audience in in these stories. I was really hesitant in my previous projects to be on camera. It may not seem like that, but I didn't think in terms of conditions may apply or what lies upstream that the story was about me because it's not. In both cases, I had to go back and it was much later in the film where I said, okay, I guess I am a part of this story. So now I need to be a more active character in it or at least active by the end and and, and more inquisitive along the way. I try to come at these stories as neutral as possible, especially this last one where I was bouncing between these two sides that hate each other. How do you manage going between two sides that literally want to put each other in prison on a global scale and have them continue to give you access as a filmmaker? I had to come up with all kinds of rules in this case to, to do that. And I had to be really upfront with them and say, look, I'm not going to share something with the other side. In the same way, I'm not going to share something that you might want to know about the other side with you. There had to be some semblance of trust and they would test me along the way as well to see if I would leak things to the other side. And so I just became a a firewall so that I I could document these dueling perspectives. Because I'm moving between these two sides, I guess the hope was to be a a grounding force (laughs) for the audience when you're treading into these kind of murky waters.
0: I'm somebody who if I see it's a story about Q, I'm going to read it. I listened to the QAnon Anonymous podcast, and it's very easy to find yourself going down that rabbit hole. Like I not a Q follower, but I'm a follower of Q followers. Were you ever concerned about that, that you were going to get sucked in? I guess I was sucked in. It's
2: impossible to tell a story like this without becoming completely obsessed with that. I probably read the Q drops more than almost any Q follower in trying to figure out who was behind this. I'm afraid to admit how many times I read the first 500 just looking for forensics clues that would lead me to who was behind the the operation. I was spending every second thinking about not necessarily the same things that Q followers are thinking about, but I was thinking about the hows and whys of Q day in, day out, and trying to get to the bottom of it in a very obsessive way. (laughs) So I wouldn't say that
0: I was worried about it because I was just completely immersed in it. When you do talk to some of the Q folks, I was really interested in one conversation you had with a woman in Florida. And you basically say, Q's not omniscient. And she says, well, that's your opinion. And she says another thing, which is the fact that so many people in power are trying to discredit them shows that they're to something. I just wonder that kind of weird logical world. Did you find yourself arguing with these people all the time? How did you stop yourself from doing that? I, that's what I would have been doing just... Shouting at them. <laughs>
2: and my editors said that they found it pretty enjoyable to listen to me debating with Q followers. I did a lot more of that in the first year of filming, kind of stepped away from it later on because it, I wasn't really making any progress in, in that debate. It might be fun to watch the sort of verbal spar. And that's why we included that little bit. I, I found over time it was better just to look for common ground anywhere I could or discuss things where they hadn't necessarily made up their minds yet, redirect the conversation towards new ideas or new narratives. I found that to be more productive, or or I would just fall back on a topic that I care a lot about, which was the topic of digital free speech. If I didn't want to hear any more about Comet Ping Pong, (laughs) I would redirect the conversation somewhere else. But to your other point, this idea that because these organizations are attacking, that somehow it's evidence that Q must be right. I think the sort of bigger philosophical answer to that is that the hostility of suppression speeds up the treadmill of extremism. The more that, that Q was attacked or censored, or they felt that they were being like grossly misrepresented, it, it actually fed the beast. It became a way of speeding up their belief that surely they must be right, that surely there was something to Q. And Q knew how to leverage that as well. And that's why I, I think that when looking at something like Q or reporting on it or telling a story about it, Coming at it from a neutral perspective and just showing it for what it is so much more powerful than just making fun of it or not hearing from the people who believe in it themselves or the people who are actually behind
1: it. The film really takes off when you start to hone in on these three characters, Jim and Ron Watkins and Frederick Brennan. They're amazing characters. These are unforgettable people and you spend a lot of time with them and really, I think, get to know them. As a result, we get to know them. I want you to maybe go back to the first meeting you had with each of the three and just tell us how those initial meetings went.
2: My first interaction with someone from the primary trio, Fred Brennan, Jim and Ron Watkins, was with Fred. He was the most public facing of the three. There really wasn't much information about Ron or Jim available at the time, especially Ron. I reached out to Fred over Twitter. He said he agreed to talk to me because I had, quote, trolled Mark Zuckerberg in my previous film. In terms and conditions may apply. I guess he he respected a little, a little bit of on-screen trolling. I didn't view it quite that way. It was more like revealing that Mark Zuckerberg cares about privacy, his own privacy, just not our privacy. But anyway, that was why Fred agreed to talk to me. And we talked for hours. Fascinating guy. At the end of that conversation, I said, hey, do you mind if I come and film with you? And he said, yeah, but I'm in the Philippines. He hadn't really been in anything in a number of years. I think he'd done a short news piece five or six years earlier and a couple other things. But he was also not like super well known at the time. He said, well, you might also want to talk to Jim and Ron Watkins. (laughs) And I said, "I'd, I'd of course be interested in that, but I don't have any way to get a hold of them. So Fred put me in touch and I had no idea what the interpersonal drama was with them at the time. None whatsoever. Tensions weren't that high at that point. They were still talking to each other. I had a little bit of back and forth with Ron. And then you see it in the series, that first phone call that I have where I ask him, you know, if I can come out to the Philippines. And at that point in time, I I didn't necessarily think that they were behind Q. The reason I reached out to them was because Q was on the website that they ran. I figured if anybody knew who was behind Q, it'd be those closest to the source, those who had the data. When I got to the Philippines, I wasn't sure if anyone was even going to show up. It was all very fly by the seat of your pants. The interview with Fred, like... We arranged it that morning. Same thing with Jim. Like everything happens at the last second, including meeting spots. It was all very unpredictable. But gosh, after that first meeting with Jim and Ron Watkins, coming back from the Philippines, I was like, these guys are suspicious. Yeah, my my attention quickly redirected to them. Uh, I had no idea if they were going to continue wanting to film. I, I thought perhaps that first trip was all I was going to get with them. And I just played it by ear. As the story evolved, I would reach out to them and say, hey, can we get together and film again. And it was really telling the second time I went to film with Ron and Jim because their stories had completely changed. Suddenly they knew a lot less than they knew the previous time. You could tell that conversations had happened in the background. Oftentimes the greatest clues in the story were those of omission or where characters changed their stories or suddenly forgot something really obvious that they clearly knew the answer to okay, why now would they change their story? So it was more about what they weren't saying or how they changed their stories than what they were directly
1: saying on camera.
2: Though I think as an audience, when you're watching um, them talk direct to camera, you can start to get a sense of when they're lying.
1: There is this fictional trope of unreliable narrators. You tap into that very effectively. I'm just wondering if It was really early on that you began to realize not only are these maybe going to be unreliable narrators in my finished series, but they may be being pretty unreliable with me as their witness. How did you balance the fact that you're getting closer to these guys at the same time that you, as the stand in for the audience, are having to be pretty critical of them, knowing that they're not telling me the full story all the time?
2: I was aware that I was. Dealing with unreliable narrators. And I think a big part of what I was doing along the way was I, keeping mental notes of all of the discrepancies. I was constantly aware that they might be lying to me or making things up. It was like a cat and mouse game when you're with them. I would have to always ask myself, well, why are they telling me something? The why became more important. You know, why is Ron telling me that? He thinks that Q is Steve Bannon. Why would he go down that path? Why would he present me with all of this data? What would be the motive for doxing his most famous user? Would it be to cover up for himself? Or is it just because he wants the credit and thinks it's funny that he figured it out and that it's someone that's close to Trump? What's the real motive here? In that instance, he had put together a very convincing digital trail. It took me a long time to put together the pieces of how he could have faked that, why he could have faked that. And that was a challenge for me. So that's why I give the audience that same experience that I had of that red herring. And in fact, Ron trying to make it look like Steve Bannon ends up being one of the greatest clues pointing back to Ron.
1: You mentioned earlier two other movies, documentaries that are also favorites of mine, American Movie and King of Kong. And these three guys really remind me of characters in those movies. They're as vivid. They're as quirky as the characters in those movies. What point did you really just start to think, I couldn't make up characters like this. These guys are just something right out of a novel.
2: The characters really are stranger than fiction. I think if I were to write them, people wouldn't believe it. They are the kind of characters that fall in line with the the films you've described. These characters that stick with you. I would also throw the jinx in there as another character that really, where you're playing this sort of, dance with their ego and their psychology, what's the word? Unicorn, right? Like these sort of rare creatures that have really bizarre ways of going through life. And I, I think that's the word that you would use on the chance is lords, right? These are all people who want to rule the edge of their respective domains. And I think what you're watching here is that they are jockeying for control of that edge. Who can be more provocative? Who can get the bigger lie published in mainstream outlets? Who's smarter than whom? And like King of Kong, I always admired that film because it, you, you had cameras with both sides. It's so rare in a documentary to see that. I guess you see it in Dig, you see it in Tiger King, where there aren't many documentaries out there that put cameras with both sides. And I always love that, where you're able to see these competing perspectives, especially when it's done in a kind of neutral way and just lets the characters, whatever, pull their own rope. They're the ones who, through simply what they say and do, reveal themselves o- o- over time and-, and through that opposition. I-, I didn't really know what the nature of my relationship was to any of these characters along the way, I- if there was any modicum of trust or how much friendship there actually was how much people were just trying to use each other. That's part of why I went into this world doing my best to be as honest with everyone as possible, which is something very different than I think they're used to or how they treat each other. They're all wearing hats all the time. Ron and Jim are constantly playing characters, constantly trying to be provocative, but he's a different person online than he is in person. And I think you see that in the series somewhat. Uh, And I think that's true for for most of these individuals. What they use the internet for, what they use anonymity for, who they are online, it's just completely different than who they are in real life. After the series released, Ron sent me a message and he said, I learned a long time ago that the bigger you make a a character online (laughs) makes for a more interesting and ultimately entertaining existence. And that he identifies more with villains. Even since the film came out, he's leaned into this idea of being a villain and identifying with villains. And I think that in many ways, he's just come around to embracing the character that I believe he was playing.
0: When we first meet the characters, they all seem fascinating but flawed, but over time a rivalry forms. And... It feels to me like our sympathies grow for Fred and less so for Ron and Jim. Do you think that's fair? And did you feel the same thing?
2: I I do know that audiences feel that way when watching it. And I think that it's fair. Yeah. I was doing my best simply to chronicle what happened. And so if that's the feeling that comes out of it, then it's perfectly fair.
1: Yeah. You talked about the difficulty of being fair to both sides and being present for both sides. But there's that sequence with... Jim's immigration hearing, where that line to me seems to get obliterated. You really do need to basically literally pick sides because Fred's going to be there in the same space, challenging Jim's immigration status. And Jim's going to be there defending himself. You're following Fred to the hearing. You're with him. You do seem to have a second unit following Jim at some point. What were your challenges emotionally and just logistically for that whole immigration sequence to stay fair to both sides, document the story, but also have to pick sides yourself.
2: That was challenging. Fred had invited me to come to the immigration hearing where he was going to try to prevent Jim from getting his Filipino citizenship. In order to maintain that position of neutrality, I needed to have cameras on both sides. And it was a really fine line to walk. If I tell Fred, okay, I'm going to have cameras with Jim, how's that going to make him respond? If I show up at the courthouse with cameras just following Fred, how's that going to make Jim feel? And what's that going to do to the entire case that I've been making as a neutral actor in all of this? So... I did not tell Fred that I had cameras with the other side that day, but I also told Jim, look, I'm going to be there with Fred with cameras. To be fair to you, I would like to offer to have cameras follow you that day as well. The challenge there was deciding whether or not I would tell Fred, but knowing Fred and also not wanting to change the emotions of the moment either. Because if I tell Fred, Jim's absolutely going to show up that day, that changes Fred's entire expectations. You lose anticipation. And I felt that it was the ethically appropriate thing to do to provide cameras with both sides in that situation and to not tell Fred until after the scene had been done that, yes, that other camera crew was my camera crew. He actually thought that Jim had hired someone to follow him that day to the courthouse.
1: You really do cross a line between neutral observer to almost savior with Fred. He calls you and he's pretty desperate after hearing that there might be this libel charge and it could lead to six years in jail. You seem to pretty immediately recognize the severity of his situation and feel like I, I need to go and help this guy. And you do it in those moments. You still have this film that you're making, and I'm sure you're processing, how's this going to you know play out in my movie? But you're also just a guy who's helping somebody out in a pretty desperate situation. I,
2: I think that the line sometimes people think was crossed when it comes to neutrality is when I go to the. Philippines to film Fred's escape. However, another rule that I had was to minimize harm. And in fact, actually, that was my top rule. You know, neutrality was number two or three. Before I flew there, I called up a mentor of mine and asked her, what's the ethical thing to do here? How should I approach this? These are the circumstances. Am I right to think that I should go and document this? And then what is the right level of involvement? I also have strong feelings about the nature of, of free speech as an American and the idea that Fred had called Jim Watkins like some nasty names on Twitter and that that had resulted in a cyber libel charge, which could land him in the Bikutan detention center. And with someone with his condition, he could die. That's just not something that I could live with. And we also had COVID on our heels. I literally landed on the last flight that was let in from Hong Kong like the last one. And at the time, we didn't know how someone with his condition might be affected by COVID. If he ends up in a detention center, and then COVID spreading, what happens then? I knew I had to go. There didn't seem to be any question with that. But then once you're there, and you're in this pressure cooker, combined with actual risks of an authoritarian government, where you don't really know the consequences, technically, Fred hadn't done anything illegal yet and wasn't doing anything illegal at that time. The indictment had not officially dropped yet. It was impending. But then once things had gotten to that point, the best solution for Fred, according to his lawyer, was to leave the country. So it wasn't helping an escaped fugitive or something (laughs) yet. The minimize harm principle was the guiding force here. When you're trying to minimize harm, you say, well, gosh, you're somebody who could likely die for something that they said for a cyber libel charge. And that's not something that I could live with or I felt was appropriate in this case. And also I I needed to document Fred's escape as part of the story. I think that if there was any sort of stepping over the neutrality line, it would be in having to physically assist him. But If Fred was able-bodied, it wouldn't have been the same thing. I could have gone and just documented him, but this wasn't a situation where he could do everything on his own. He needed physical help doing any number of things. And that's where things got a little bit blurry. When you're trying to balance filming something like that with the consequences of what's happening. I, I would try to make it so that the filming wouldn't get in the way. Of course, I don't want the filming to cause some sort of delay in, in him being able to get out of there. Of course, you need to be documenting what's happening. And I think it worked out and I would do it again. What else is yeah, it going to do? I think it was the
0: right thing to do. A lot of your movies about chasing down the originator, but also understanding the people as well is clearly part of what you're trying to do. You have a political science from the University of Miami who points out that QAnon is unique among conspiracy theories because it not only talks about a cabal of people doing something bad, but it talks about this savior, Trump, who's going to save everybody in the end. Of course, that sounds less like a conspiracy and more like a religion. I'm wondering, having been around these folks, is this a conspiracy theory group? Is this a religion? Is this a political movement? It's all of the above. It's part political movement, part religion,
2: part interactive game. The couple you see in the beginning of the series, Jen and Jamie Buteau, they're the ground troops in the Q hierarchy. Jamie would often talk about Trump with the reverence of God, almost like the second coming. And I always worried that if Trump like wanted them to do something on his behalf, I don't know, storm the Capitol on the 6th, that they would be the kind of people who would go and do that because they held him, especially Jamie, with such reverence. And that actually ended up happening. I didn't find out about it until months later, but both Jen and Jamie were in the Capitol and were arrested by the FBI in June. I think that even though it's those three things, even though it might've started as a LARP, it became real over time. I think if you pretend to be something long enough, you eventually become that thing. And A lot of individuals who might have been drawn into it because it gave them a sense of purpose or or meaning or community, a lot of things that religion gives people. Or it just was fun. It was was something to, to fill their days and make them feel like they knew something that others didn't. We're playing along with Q and able to contribute to the story along the way by trying to decipher the meaning of Q's posts. I think a lot of people started one foot in, one foot out, and over time, we're all in and couldn't differentiate anymore between what they believed to be true and what they didn't. And I've I've actually wondered if a lot of wars have started this way with people just like puffing up or conjuring spirits of the past and play acting or putting on costumes. And and then one thing leads to another and suddenly all of the pomp and stance becomes real conflict with serious consequences. I think that's what happened on the sixth.
0: That's a really interesting insight. It's something that plays out, I think, All through the six episodes that the LARP becomes real. And one thing that I think you do to emphasize that is you have two versions of White Rabbit that play. Uh, At the end of episode one, you have an 8-bit version, which is like all 8-bit versions poppy and fun. And then you have a much more anthemic version at the end of episode six, where we see the attack on the Capitol. Was that intended to create that distinction between it's, oh, it's fun and games, and then it becomes much more serious?
2: Oh, I'm really glad you caught that. This is something that I had discussed with the whole team through the entire post process is, is how do we build this sense into the series, something starting as a game, and becoming something very serious music was one of the best ways to match that shift the white rabbit has been a part of the Q canon from the beginning it's based on the alice in wonderland follow the white rabbit but the white rabbit leads you into this sort of wonderland environment and this is something that q is citing a lot in fact most of the early q drops end with alice in wonderland period Almost half of them do so Q followers really started on their own sort of add to the, the story about the the White Rabbit and a lot of the memes included the White Rabbit and the White Rabbit began to symbolize the journey of following the White Rabbit that one takes when they, t- quote unquote, take the red pill and start to wake up. We started out using gamified music and you'll find that over the course of the series, you get more, I'll use the word authentic sounds and instrumentation, music that's generated in reality. And White Rabbit was, I think, the biggest example of that, the one that I was most excited to introduce into the structure, where it starts with this kind of almost chip tune White Rabbit as, as internet-y and gamified as possible. And then you get to the end and it's a chorus singing the, the, the track to instrumentation. We were trying to capture that shift that I had watched over the course of making this from LARP to reality in the form of music.
1: I do want to talk about January 6th, it's amazing to me that you were there with Jim at the Trump rally. And as Jim is making his way toward the Capitol, did you have any inkling of what would go down when you first hooked up with Jim? And I suppose he told you, yeah, I'm going to be coming to Washington.
2: When Trump said that he wanted to have a wild protest, I knew that things were going to be pretty bad. And I think that anybody who had really been monitoring these spaces, the chans and, and the various groups out there that were most willing to do whatever <laughs> Trump might ask, knew that something really bad was going to happen on the 6th. I reached out to Jim and I said, are you going to be there? And he said, oh yeah, of course. He wouldn't miss this historical moment. I got to DC a couple of days early. I didn't really sleep much those two nights. I was very anxious going into it just because I thought it was going to be much worse than it ended up being, to be frank. I think that for most people sitting at home watching on television, it was suddenly like a switch had been flipped. I don't mean to assume how people were reacting, but I think for a lot of people, it was like, where the hell did this come from? (laughs) And I'm watching it going, this is the inevitable conclusion to something that has been brewing for years now. To this day, I'm surprised that it wasn't worse than it was. I I Honestly, I think it could have broken out to civil war. I think it was a very touch and go situation. And I'm very grateful that it
1: didn't. What about Jim? What was his thought process as he's showing up in Washington for this rally, he really seems pretty naive when you're walking around with him and talking to him, but I don't know. Hmm. What was Jim's mindset? I would say pride, boastful. I think that he
2: could sense his role in what was happening that day on camera. He talks about it. He says this, talking about January 6th, was the most non-business thing that he had ever done or helped to facilitate. He was almost looking out on the events that day, I think, like a puppeteer or puppet master or something. But I want to be clear, where we were standing that day, we didn't know what was going on inside the Capitol. Cell phones were largely jammed. Jim at one point says he could see someone out the window and cheers excitedly about that. But I couldn't necessarily see the same thing. I didn't know if he was just expressing his desire or if that was actually happening. It wasn't until we got back to the hotel that we saw the same images that everybody else saw.
0: Throughout the course of your series, you are honing in on who might Q be. And you make a pretty convincing case at the end that you're, I've identified one, maybe two individuals, a pretty good case. Why is that important? Would this have happened anyways? Why is it important that we know who Q is? I think that
2: revealing the identity behind the mask reveals the intentions behind what Key was doing. You can get a clear sense of not only the motivation, but the nature of the ruse and how they think and and operate. By doing that, you reveal the mechanics of it. You show the intent. I think that who is behind it is At the heart of Q itself, most people can believe in Q because it's this anonymous specter that comes with all the benefits of whoever they want to believe it is, whether it's Trump or Flynn or Ezra Cohen-Watnick or whatever. Whoever they want to believe, they can imagine this sort of idyllic figure in their heads and without any of the cons. When you say, okay, well, actually, here's your guy. Dude in a green hat who's just basically a real life walking shit post. This is the person who's puppeteering what's going on with Q. It changes how you think about not only the entire narrative, but what its function was. A lot of people who were Q believers, watched the series, have just by engaging with, I think, this neutral perspective and seeing who the players were behind the scenes have recalibrated their views of QAnon. I don't know if they necessarily all walked away from it, but it's given them new things to talk about. These are all characters as well who were central to Q lore. Code Monkey Ron was mentioned in a number of Q drops and he had been elevated to this sort of deity status, I think, in the minds of a lot of people. They had no idea who he was or how he thought. And he wears this green hat all the time because he's basically trolling for women and he wants women in China to think that he's a cuck. Because that green hat means that you've been made a cuckold of so that they approach him and say, oh, by gosh, do you know what that green hat means? And then he uses it as a pickup trick. Everything he does in life is largely like a part he's playing and it's performative and it's to be provocative. I think that bit that you see, which is really important to me in episode four, where he talks about cynicism and the idea that a dog can shit in the middle of the town square, why can't I? That's cute. I think it's vital that people know that. To me, it's, it seems obvious why who's behind something like this matters because a lot of people believe that it's this big government operation run by people who are trying to get the truth out. Whereas in reality, it's someone who's just really well versed in LARPs and 8 Chan and Chan culture and Chan beliefs.
1: When did you pretty much feel close to certainty that Ron was your guy? Was it the slip-up or was it earlier than that?
2: So whether or not there had been the slip-up scene, I had already accrued this massive list of evidence pointing to Ron. I was convinced it was Ron. I'd been convinced it was Ron for the better part of six months. The only other option was Steve Bannon, really. And the reality was that everything on the Steve Bannon list was something that Ron had told me. (laughs) So I had been convinced that it was Ron for some time. And I don't even include... Everything that's on that list in the series, there was no room for it. The first time that we did the, and here's how he did it. Here's all the evidence piece. It was like 20 minutes long. There's so much. <laughs> but I think we kept the greatest hits in there. The slip up is just the
0: cherry on top. It's the cue proof.
2: It's the cue proof. Yes.
0: <laughs> Ron has a critique of the press that I actually thought was compelling. He says reporters call up Fred. They take him at his word. Fred then sources that story in uh, a Wikipedia page. And he's basically laundering his own tales as truth. Did you see that as a valid critique? Yeah, I did. And I think part of what happened here is
2: that you had a lot of these outlets just reading each other's articles and not actually talking to any of the people who were, either propagating Q or believing in it. So they were spinning their own narratives and actually fueling Q in that process. And maybe when I pointed that out in the series, they didn't like that so much. the media's reaction to the series is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, to be honest. And maybe it's just because we released the series out of the blue, partially because we had to do it with this sort of great deal of secrecy. And maybe I was treading on the territory of all these journalists who had been covering Q and they're like, who the hell is this guy? Maybe they were watching going like, HBO is funding this guy to, to travel around the world. And he had exclusive access." to these people who wouldn't return our phone calls, maybe there was a little bit of professional jealousy. I really don't know.
1: With this unmasking of Ron as the likely person behind Q, this is a scoop. This is real news. Yet, I don't think just in looking at some of the reactions to the film and in the news that this has really been given enough coverage. I was
2: frankly a little surprised by that reaction as well. I thought it would have been a bigger news item that Q had been unmasked, or at least we had all of this evidence pointing to Ron Watkins. I do think that it's problematic that there hasn't been an article in the New York Times yet that covered what was revealed in this series. I also think that part of it is that a lot of these outlets didn't have access to The characters that I had access to, they they weren't necessarily talking to those who believed in QAnon. So the narratives that were largely being generated by the mainstream press in the run-up to the release of this focused on the harm that Q was doing, focused on the families, focused on why people believe in this stuff. And so they became convinced that was the most important story, not necessarily who was behind Q. And also because they couldn't figure it out. Every outlet on the planet was trying. The Guardian, New York Times, they have... Teams working on this, so of course it matters who Q is. Those outlets hadn't necessarily cracked it. So instead they had reported on the effects that Q was having. And they, I guess, maybe convinced themselves that was the most important story. And that had been covered a great deal. Why do people believe in Q? There's a lot of coverage on that. But I think that you could do a story like, why do people believe in in evangelical Christianity? Why do people read the Inquirer? The, The whys of people being drawn to stuff like this I think are in some ways, to me, not quite as interesting as the mechanics that make something like this possible. And I think that the why is when you just deal with like the effects actually make it bigger because it seems like an attack on Q. Whereas if you just focus on how does the magic trick work, then that magic trick can't necessarily work again. So I'm still a little frustrated that this information about Ron Watkins and what was revealed in the series wasn't a bigger news item. I don't want to say it's shameful, but I'm a little bit embarrassed for mainstream press for not covering it more than they did.
1: It's also interesting in terms of the history of documentary and the response of the mainstream media and audiences to that, to compare the response to this, the unmasking of Q as Ron Watkins, to the jinx, which you brought up earlier, and the case- To be made against Robert Durst in that, and to look at that response, which was many articles above the fold, New York Times, a ton of publicity around that. How can we make sense of the different reactions to those two unmaskings?
2: It's tough. I think that the analogy is reasonable. There was this idea of, oh, we don't say the name of someone like this because it makes them bigger. Look, we report on politicians all the time who are, are causing unbelievable calamities abroad, but we say their names. I feel like saying, we're not going to report on McNamara because of what McNamara did. There wasn't this case being made about platforming Durst. We can show bad people doing bad things or, or people that we might assume to be bad people without becoming bad ourselves. How do you understand anything if you can't talk about problems in the world or the characters who are shaping culture and politics if you can't show them? And I think maybe some of the critique was that I put these characters on a screen at all. and And it would have been like, how do you tell a story about Robert Durst, if you don't put Robert Durst on the screen. I think that this idea of talking about things is the same as platforming them is just utterly wrongheaded. The anesthetic of sunlight is effective. You can talk about these things without them causing more problems. A lot of that initial reaction, the sort of hesitancy to cover the reveal in the series of who I believe is behind QAnon, I think some of that has reversed since then, partially since we've seen the effects the series actually had. A lot of the fear casting, some of those culture writers initially projected simply wasn't the case. It didn't exacerbate QAnon. It's actually been in decline since the series was released based on polls done by the New York Times and by NPR. So at a minimum, the series was net neutral. You can say based simply on numbers that less people believe in this stuff now, even though I don't think that was necessarily the goal of the series. The goal was just to historically document something and show it for what it was from a neutral perspective as best I could but to also reveal the mechanics and those who are behind the operation.
0: Do you stay in touch with Fred or others?
2: I do, yeah, yeah. Fred has sent me some messages. We still go back and forth over Twitter and email sometimes. I've thought a- so much about Fred. Someone with his condition, death feels like it's around the corner. And so I feel like he, he makes decisions and lives his life at just a faster pace than anyone I've known. It also lends itself to a lot of drama and a lot of misery in his own life, I think he has a hard time making decisions that will make his life easier. And I hope that in the aftermath of the series that his life cools down a little bit and he gets out of these massive conflicts I occasionally get messages from
0: Ron still.
2: Jim has this show that they do. They've invited me to go on. I guess it's on his network, like Tiger Network or something. But I haven't agreed to do it quite yet.
0: It sounds like they're not terribly disappointed by the documentary then.
2: I think that everybody who was in the film felt that it was a fair representation of their intentions, which was my goal. I, I would always think in the editing room, what do they mean when they say this? If I included this in the story where they say, yeah, that's what I think. Uh, It doesn't mean that they like everything that was included in it. Of course, Ron will continue to deny that he's Q because I think he has to for self-preservation reasons, but I think he's come as close to admitting to it as he can.
1: You've gone on quite a journey here yourself. You've made features before, but this is your first series. You began this project out there on your own. You didn't have a lot of support, financial or otherwise, And you managed to really pull off, I think, an incredible achievement. So congratulations for one. But my question is, what are the lessons learned for you as a filmmaker and as someone who tells stories and is concerned about issues related to privacy and freedom of speech. Where do you go from here?
2: I feel very fortunate that I got to tell the story in the way that I was hoping and managed to make a series about this topic. I, I remain concerned and interested in the trajectory of digital rights. I, I think that this bigger question about free speech online is a topic that should be discussed more. I think right now, a lot of folks feel like the banning on Twitter has been really effective. I think a lot of folks feel like the internet is a nicer, happier place right now. But if you see the way that those who have been banned from like Twitter are regrouping, the main thing they talk about is censorship. I went to all of these rallies and it stopped being about the actual ideas that any individual speaker might have. And it just became about the fact that they were being censored. Uh, And it was a very effective rallying tool. It's a tough question we need to face, whether or not the treatment is worse than the disease (laughs) and how we think about speech in these digital spaces. We give these big tech companies a lot of control over our lives. And I don't even think we would be in this situation if our privacy hadn't been eroded in the first place. Honestly, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. I'm not even sure Q could exist because after our privacy was eroded, all these companies had thousands of data points on us. They were able to build psychometric profiles hyper-target us with campaigns that speak to our fears and concerns and drive us into echo chambers. And inside of those echo chambers is, is where the speech that started emerging became increasingly extreme and volatile. So now we're saying, well, gosh, we should do something about that speech. And I guess I would just say, well, why don't we start by restoring rights rather than taking more away and see if that works? What's next for you? A lot of people have been asking if I'm going to do a follow-up to Q into the Storm. At this time, I don't feel like it's necessary. I'm keeping tabs on the story, chronicling and archiving. If you've been following me on Twitter, I've tried to keep people updated on how the story's progressed since everything released on HBO, but presently not planning for a follow-up to Q. I'm developing a few new projects. I'm generally interested in this intersection between technology and civil liberties. So considering more of these sort of investigative stories, in the digital space. I just want to keep telling stories and doing investigations into things that um, I'm curious about. You just start with questions that I don't have answers to. And and hopefully I get to keep making them.
1: We certainly hope you get to to make more films, more series like this one. I think Mike and I both agree it's incredibly compelling and important. You can follow Colin on Twitter at Colin
0: Hoback, C-U-L-L-E-N-H-O-B-A-C-K. Thanks for meeting us on a Saturday. Hey, I just want to ask you a question. You mentioned VPN. Do you find yourself taking precautions around recording interviews? Are you concerned about State or other actors surveilling you? When we were doing the production,
2: it was unclear exactly what the threat model was. We had a sort of a range of potential hackers potential government subcontractors, a lot of people who might be interested in what you're doing and you never know of who you're talking to as someone who's involved with QAnon. So yeah, we took every precaution that we could, including in the final days of post-production, going to a, a remote location to finish the show.